Amen. Thank you, students. Thank you, Jake. If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 119. Our passage this morning is verse 33 to verse 40. There's an outline in the bulletin where you can track along with some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. This is our fifth week in Psalm 119. So that means we have a whole month of Psalm 119 in the rearview mirror. And it means that we have four months of Psalm 119 ahead of us, so we have a long way still to go. And I think this is a good spot a month in to acknowledge that there are a couple of dangers in a protracted study of Psalm 119. One danger is that all of the repetition, and there's a lot of it in Psalm 119, all of the repetition just sort of numbs us to what the psalmist is saying. And I just want to point out to you that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the psalmist to write this chapter of the Bible, did not think that we needed eight verses, or 16 verses, or 24 verses, but 176 verses. And the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he inspired the psalmist to write this lengthy psalm, and so we need to hear the repetition over and over and over again. So that's one danger, that we just sort of get numb to what the psalmist is telling us rather than allowing the repetition to drive these truths home. The second danger, now that we're a month in and we have four months to go, is that we assume, because of all the repetition, that we have now heard everything that we need to hear from Psalm 119. So I'm going to acknowledge there's a lot of repetition, four weeks behind us, four months to go. There's a lot of things we're going to say over the next four months that we're just going to say over and over and over again, but we need ears to hear the unique emphases that pop up in each section as we work through Psalm 119. So yes, there's a lot of repetition, and yes, there are new ideas that we need to have our ears open to as we proceed. So just a few reminders up front. We're dealing with an acrostic psalm. It's based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We've come to the fifth letter this morning, which is the letter I know in English it looks like he, but it's hey. The letter hey, and you can see uh, on the screen, I'll put up the, uh, the original Hebrew here. There's the letter hey, and there on the side, verse 33 to verse 40, the first letter of the first word in each of the eight lines of poetry in this stanza starts with the letter hey. So it's a mnemonic device, an acrostic poem to help the original audience remember. It gives you that first letter and that first word. So often when you memorize scripture, you need one or two words, and then the rest of the verse can come flowing after that, and that's what the psalmist has done in this acrostic. There are 176 verses. Almost all of them make some reference to the written word of God, the scriptures, what we would call the Bible. We haven't come to any of the verses that omit a reference to the Bible. So far, all of them have had some reference, and there's all sorts of terms used in Psalm 119, word, precepts, uh, testimonies, law, and more or less, they're all used interchangeably. It's just giving us variety as the psalmist is talking about the written word of God over these 176 verses. Now, one point I want to make up front, this is related to one of the points we made last week, and it's foundational for our understanding of this particular stanza of Psalm 119 is this. Following Jesus requires intentionality and commitment. 
And as a follower of Jesus, if you are not intentional and you're not committed to being a follower of Jesus, the expectation that we would have of you is that you would drift away or you would fall away. Just a couple of verses to sort of get your mind thinking in this direction. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, we must pay close attention, closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You have to pay very close attention to the gospel, not just when you get saved and baptized, but throughout your life as a follower of Jesus. You have to pay close attention to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't do that, if you're not intentional and committed to the truth of the gospel, the author of Hebrews expects that you will just drift away. You'll fade away. See, the same idea at the end of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2. I've left out a little part of it, but the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus, and we have to run towards him. We have to pay close attention to the message of the gospel. If you do not run that race with endurance, you will drift away. You will fall away. That ties into the big idea of our passage this morning. The big idea is simply this. The Word of God is essential for endurance. It's essential for endurance. You and I, as followers of Jesus, need the Bible if we are going to endure as followers of Jesus. So before we read the text, let me just make one quick point. Again, this is related to something we talked about last week in the question of the security of the believer and the question of once saved, always saved. When it comes to the salvation of a sinner, the Bible could not be more clear in stressing the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. God is absolutely sovereign. We just read the call to worship, Psalm 95, that he is a great king above all gods. He rules and he reigns from the throne of heaven. He is sovereign over all that he has made, over all that happens. His sovereignty and his power know no limits, and he is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. The Bible describes this in Trinitarian terms in saying to us that the Father, before the foundation of the world, planned to save a people. That the Son, in the fullness of time, died not simply to make our salvation possible but to make it certain and the spirit of God the triune God works together in salvation the spirit of God is sent to bring dead sinners to life that they might turn from their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners and if you listen to the Bible you have to believe that you also have to believe in human responsibility human beings are responsible we're responsible for our sin. We don't just get to say, well, God planned it that way. That's what happened. It's all God's fault. We don't get to say that. We're responsible for our sin, 100%. The call extended to us in the gospel is a call to repent and to believe. If you've never done that this morning, that call is being extended to you now. 
to acknowledge the truth about God and His holiness, to confess your sin, to turn from it, to repent of it, and to put your faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are responsible for the response you make or do not make to the call of the gospel in your life. And the Bible is describing both of these things as being true in our salvation. God is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of sinners. And human beings are responsible, responsible for our sin and responsible for the way that we respond or do not respond to the gospel message. And we're going to see that in this section of Psalm 119 as the psalmist is not talking about the moment of conversion, but he's talking about our endurance as followers of the one true God, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that we endure in the faith. Well, the Word of God is central to that, and the tension that plays out in Psalm 119 is the same tension that runs from Genesis to Revelation. We're dependent on the sovereignty of God and our salvation, and we're responsible, not only for our sin, not only for repentance, not only for faith, but also for our endurance as followers of Jesus Christ. So, let's read Psalm 119, beginning in verse 33 and running down to verse 40. Bible says this, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my ear to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness Give me life. Father, this morning our prayer is simple. What we know not, we pray that you would teach us. And what we have not, we pray that you would give us. What we are not, we pray that you would make us. We ask that you would do these things for your glory and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So right now as a staff here at Emmanuel, we're reading a book. We just started this last week. The book is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's written by a man who has passed away uh, not that long ago, Eugene Peterson. So just a couple of things up front about Peterson. Yes, this is the Eugene Peterson who is the translator or the paraphraser of the message. And yes, you have heard me in this room, poke fun at the message and say that it's not the greatest tool for serious Bible study. If you really want to dig into the Scriptures and you are not a native Hebrew speaker or a native Greek speaker, the message is not the place that you ought to turn for serious Bible study. However, as a pastor and as a preacher, the writing of Eugene Peterson outside of the message has been very helpful for me 
and very encouraging to me. And so we're reading this book together uh, as a staff right now. And I just want to share with you a quote uh, about discipleship from Eugene Peterson. He says this, We assume, and by we he means Americans and American Christians. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. Just a quick reminder that the Great Commission is a call not to get people to simply make a decision but is a call for the people of God to make disciples. It's not a decision that we're looking for. It is discipleship that we're looking for. And just a friendly reminder from your church staff that what we are praying for and aiming for in your life has absolutely nothing to do with a simple decision that lasts about five minutes or an emotional feeling that fades away when you leave this room before you even get to Sunday lunch. That's not what we're looking for. It's not what we're aiming for. It's not what we're working towards as we lead you here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. The aim is discipleship, not simply a decision. To steal a a comparison point from Peterson in the very chapter I quoted from, he says American churches are filled with tourists rather than pilgrims. The call of discipleship is a call to be a pilgrim, to set out on a journey, a long journey, with an intentional purpose, and to understand the true nature of what you're working for. The the nature of a tourist is simply to come, to show up, to take in an experience, to see the thing, to check the box, and then to go home completely unchanged by that experience. We have too many tourists, he says. And we need more pilgrims. People, to go back to the title of the book, who are willing to set out in a long obedience in the same direction. He's not suggesting that your obedience earns anything with God. He's simply saying that's the nature of discipleship. It's a reorientation of your life. It's a decision that isn't just a decision, but it turns the direction of your life in a new way And you set off in this long obedience in the same direction. He talks in that quote about the dreadful attrition rate of people in the United States who make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Our aim is to not see that in your life. Our aim is that you don't drift away, you don't fall away, you don't walk away, but that you endure. You continue enduring as a follower of Jesus Christ. In this section of Psalm 119, right at the beginning, verse 33, he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. And now we're approaching this passage not just as Old Testament Hebrew saints, but we're approaching it as New Testament 
New Covenant Christians. And so the question for us is this, how does a Christian endure in following Jesus? And just want to walk through this section of Psalm 119 and point out a few truths for your consideration as you think about how you might endure as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the first suggestion I have for you. God must change our hearts. You remember where we started talking about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings? We're going to get to the responsibility that you bear to endure, but the place to begin is with the sovereignty of God and the acknowledgement that God has to actually do a work in us. God has to initiate the work of salvation, not just in its beginning, but He has to continue to be at work in us. He's got to change our hearts. So, maybe you noticed as we read through this section that there's eight verses, and in the first seven, the psalmist starts off basically telling God to do something. In the original language, these are imperatives. This is the psalmist saying to God, God, I'm asking you, I'm telling you, I'm imperative in the sense that you have to do this thing. That sounds a little bit bossy, doesn't it? To come to God in prayer and to begin telling Him what to do. One of my very favorite New Testament living Bible scholars today is named James Hamilton. And he looks at these first seven verses and he says, these are prayer wish commands. Prayer wish commands. This is not the psalmist barking out orders at Yahweh, the God of the universe. This is the psalmist praying to God, asking God to do what only God can do. To do things that the psalmist knows he can't do for himself. So you just walk right down the the first seven verses. He says, teach me, give me, lead me, incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm to your servant, turn away. He's acknowledging that he needs God's help. He's acknowledging that God, in his sovereignty, is the only one who can do these things. The psalmist can't do them for himself, and so he's coming to the Lord asking God to do what only he can do. It's why we started off with the old Scottish prayer after we read the Scripture. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. God, we need your help. There's things we don't know. There's things we don't have. There's things that are not true of us. And we need you to be at work in us for these things to be true of us. Is that not what you find in Ezekiel 36? When the prophet looks forward to the new covenant and he says, part of the glory of this new covenant is that God is going to take out the heart of stone of his people, and he's going to replace it with a heart of flesh. They can't do that themselves. They're dependent on God to do that. It's not what you find in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they don't see the truth of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we need is God to open our eyes to that truth. It's not what we saw last week. In Philippians 2, where Paul says, work out your salvation, but you and I understand we can't work anything out that God hasn't worked into us in the first place. We need God to begin the work, and we need God to complete the work, and God's going to work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure, and only when God does that do we then have the ability to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If any person is going to make a genuine decision to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
God has to initiate that work. I can't manufacture it, neither can you. And if any person is going to endure as a follower of Jesus Christ, God is going to have to continue to be at work in us. Psalmist is asking for these things. One little rabbit trail, we will not go down this rabbit trail, but let's just stop and look down the rabbit trail, okay? He's asking God to do a lot of things in this section. I think most of us are pretty good at asking God to do things. I think that comes naturally to most of us. And my encouragement to you as we look down this rabbit trail is to say, do the things that I ask God to do in my life sound like this or not? He's asking God to teach him, to give him understanding, to lead him, to incline his heart, to turn his eyes from worthless things, to confirm his promise, and to turn away reproach. That may or may not sound like your prayer, wish, request, command list as you talk to God. So number one, God has to change our hearts. Now let's talk about the human responsibility side of things with the next few points. Secondly, we must run from the love of money. We have to run from the love of money. Verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Incline my heart to your word, to what you've revealed to be true in your word, and do not incline my heart towards selfish gain. The understanding is, left to myself, I'm going to be inclined to selfish gain. And I need you, God, to incline my heart in a different direction. So the question is, what does he mean by selfish gain? How might that translate or apply to us as Americans? And maybe immediately you think about selfish gain and you think, well, he's probably talking about billionaires, right? Billionaires. We've kind of moved past being impressed with millionaires as a culture, and now we're impressed with billionaires. I don't know if you knew this or not. You can get online. Forbes has a website, a real-time, updated, every 15 minutes list of all the billionaires in the world. At any given moment, depending on if the markets are up or down, there's about 3,000 people on the list. That's a lot of billionaires, isn't it? A lot of billionaires. Maybe he's just talking to them. Selfish gain. Maybe they're the ones in danger of falling for the trap of selfish gain. Maybe he's just talking to the kind of person who's a lotto addict. I worked in a grocery store when I was in high school. I saw how people came through and bought tickets and played compulsively. I drove this last week across the state, and I passed this sign about 20 times each direction. What's the Powerball jackpot? What's the Mega Millions jackpot? We got to know. And these signs, you pass them. You're driving down the road. I'm listening to Christian music. I'm listening to sermons. And that sign pops up. And what does my mind do? It thinks, man, wouldn't that be nice? Wow, 590. I mean, that wasn't the actual photo. I got that off the internet. But you look at that sign and you start to think, man, what would I do with, what could I do with all that kind of kind of money. So maybe it's billionaires only. Maybe it's lotto addicts only. Maybe it's not just billionaires and lotto addicts. Maybe what he's really talking about is a condition of your heart that has nothing to do with the size of your bank account. Maybe he's talking about the longing and the desire of your heart. 
Maybe he's talking about the kind of thing that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus said, you better be very careful about your eyes. And you need to understand that you cannot serve God and money. Both. You'll have to decide which one you're going to serve. You can't serve them both. You will love the one and hate the other or vice versa, but you can't serve both. Maybe it's what Paul was warning Timothy about. Timothy was a young pastor, probably in Ephesus. He probably was not rich by worldly standards in any way, shape, or form, either by today's standards or his own day's standards. And yet Paul warned Timothy at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Look what he says next. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have, remember what Hebrews said? Some have wandered away. They've drifted away from the faith. And they've pierced themselves with many pangs. The psalmist is insightful enough to realize that this danger has nothing to do with the size of your 401k or how many zeros are listed out on your tax return. It has everything to do with the condition of your heart. And he prays to God, knowing that left to himself, he is inclined towards selfish gain, and he prays that God would incline his heart in a different direction. So God needs to do something, but you understand that we also have to do something. We have to beware and run from this love of money. There's warnings in the Bible. We won't tra trace these out or turn to them. Think about Gehazi. He was a servant of Elisha. Maybe the greatest miracle-working prophet in the Old Testament. I understand Moses did some amazing things, but Elisha performed some incredible miracles. And Gehazi worked for him. He's a faithful servant until he wandered away and he chased after a couple of sets of clothes and a couple of bars of silver and the Lord punished him with leprosy. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. They were charter members of First Baptist Jerusalem. They sold some land. It was theirs to do with what they pleased. They wanted to give some to the church. That's a good thing. They also wanted to keep some for themselves. They also wanted everyone to think that they gave it all and that they were very generous. And so they concocted this lie and there was a consequence for them. You can read about it in the book of Acts. Think about Judas, one-time follower of Jesus Christ, one of the twelve, who in the end betrayed the Lord for a paltry bag of silver. Run from the love of money. If you're going to endure, you're going to have to run from it. Number three on your list, we have to run from the things of the world. Run from the things of the world. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Corey had a, a great point Wednesday night when he taught uh, training for godliness and uh, he was talking to the adults in this room 
He said that he had someone in his life who used to say, show me your checkbook and I'll tell you the condition of your heart. And, you know, where do you spend your money? That's probably where your heart is. Where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. That came from Jesus. Corey made the insightful observation that today it would probably be easier to show us your screen time. And then we could tell you the condition of your heart. And I thought about screen time this last week when I thought about these worthless things. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. I thought about all the worthless things you can look at on a screen. There's a lot of them. And they're completely worthless. And the filth and the garbage that's available on social media, on the internet, on streaming services, on old-fashioned cable, anywhere and everywhere you can fix your eyes, there's something worthless to fix your eyes upon. But you understand that the psalmist said this long before the 21st century with technology and screens, long before we had a rating system where we could say, well, the rating's not that bad. It's not rated whatever. It doesn't have the E on iTunes or the Apple Music. It doesn't have the explicit warning, so it's okay. It doesn't doesn't have that four-letter word in it, so it's okay. Long before any of that stuff, the psalmist said, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. I dug around on this word worthless. Literally, it means empty, false, deceitful, futile, inconsequential. God, don't let me fix my eyes on that kind of stuff. In some ancient context, the word is actually used in conjunction with money to talk about worthless currency. Currency that on the face of it is worth something, but really it has absolutely no value. So I'll just tell you a quick story. When we go to Kenya, we have to exchange money and we come back. Sometimes you haven't always spent all the money you spend in Kenya. And uh, several years ago, I came back and I had a little envelope of money. And I hung on to it and I said, you know, I'm going to go back. I plan to go back. I'm going to save this money. I'll take it back with me and I'll spend it when I go back. Now, in the meantime, something happened in Kenya. There were some bad actors who started printing money. And they printed money excessively. And they printed so much money that the money really wasn't worth anything. And the government couldn't really get a handle on this. And so their solution to the problem is we're going to be done with that currency and we're going to come up with an entirely brand new set of bills and coins. All the old stuff is worth nothing, zero, and you got to have the new stuff if you want it to be worth anything. Now, there was a window where you could take your old stuff and exchange it, but I live here, not there. And so when I got ready to go back to Kenya, I said to Chris, hey, I'm taking my money with me. And he said, you're a fool. (laughs) And I said, no, I'll I'll find somebody that'll take it. It's it's worth something. He said, nope, it's not worth anything. Did I listen to Chris? No. Should have, but I didn't, and I took it. One of our first stops was the money exchange place, and I went into the booth And I pulled those out, and I said, I'd like to exchange these for the new Kenyan bills. And she slid them right back across to me. And she said, that's worthless. It's worthless. Not worth anything. So I took them, went to a shop a few days later, tried to break one of those out. Thought, maybe I can sneak one by somebody here. They looked at it and said, no, we don't take that. That's worthless. 
is no different than monopoly money at HEB. You can try. They're not going to take it. The psalmist says, I don't want to fix my eyes on worthless things. And I need God to incline my heart and to turn my eyes towards his word. There's a lot of worthless things in the world. And you're called to turn from those things, to run from those things. John talks about this in 1 John 1. I'll let you read it on your own. He says, don't love the world or the things in this world because it's all passing away. Don't love the world or the things in the world. You understand, there's a million worthless things in this world that don't come with a certain rating on them. It's just that in the grand scheme of things, they're worthless. When you stand before Almighty God on the day of judgment, you stand before the risen Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead, you better not show up with defunct currency that's not worth anything. And you better make that decision now as a follower of Jesus that I'm going to run from the things of the world. Number four, we must fear God. We must fear God. Verse 38. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. God in his sovereignty confirms his promise. He keeps his word. He's faithful. The psalmist is praying for that. He's asking for that. And in response, he is responsible for fearing God. When the Bible talks about fearing God, it's not talking about the abject terror that you might feel if you were uh, to stand before a, a Middle Eastern despotic dictator. It's not that kind of terror. It's not the kind of terror you might feel if you watch a horror movie and you're waiting for something to jump out or to really gross you out. It's not, it's not that kind of fear. It's fear in the knowledge of the truth of who God is. And He is a good God. And His steadfast love endures forever. And He's not slow Excuse me, he's not quick to anger, but he's actually slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for his people. But as we've sang already this morning, he's also holy. He's holy. And there's a great gulf between creator and creature. And you fearing God is acknowledging that gulf. He's the creator and I'm the creature. You fearing God is acknowledging that the Creator is pure and whole and complete and perfect, and you, the creature, in your rebellion, are none of those things. And when you acknowledge the holiness of God and you see your sin as the Bible actually describes it, the response ought to be fear. You know, a few weeks ago we talked about Ecclesiastes 12. Uh, recently on Wednesday nights we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't want to rehash the argument of the whole book, but Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. You understand there will be no person who sets out to keep God's commandments who doesn't first fear Him. You understand there will be no person who endures as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who does not first have a biblically informed, gospel-shaped 
fear of God. You understand that it is universally true that those who turn back, drift away, fade away, fall away, do so in part because they have too low of a view of God and too high of a view of self. Part of what the psalmist is praying about is that he would have God's promise confirmed so that he might fear the Lord. This is why it's important for you to be here consistently with these people in this room. Regardless of who's standing here talking, regardless of who's sitting behind or holding the instruments on the stage, it's important for you to be here and to worship. And I'm not talking about worship in the broadest sense. I understand that worship, fully understood, encompasses anything and everything in your life where you're seeking to honor the Lord and you're giving consideration to His glory and you're seeking His will. I understand that uh, as you drive down the road and pass those lottery signs, you can worship all alone. You can sing. You can exercise and do yard work and listen to sermons in your ears and that can be a worshipful thing. But you understand that all of that stuff is multitasking. And hopefully what happens in this room is not multitasking. We don't want to come in here and try to do three things at once. We want to come in here together and we want to do one thing. We want to listen to the Word of God and we want to respond as the people of God in worship. You understand and I understand that if we did the math, the time, the amount of time that you spend in this room is really small. Even if you're a double dipper and you're back on Wednesday nights, the amount of time you spend in this room with these people worshiping the Lord is a really small amount of time. You sleep more than you're in here. You work more than you're in here. You probably mow the yard more than you're in here if you're a lawn mowing kind of person. You probably go to more kids' activities than you spend in this room. It's a small amount of time in the grand scheme of things, but it's not insignificant. And God in His wisdom has designed the corporate worship of His people on a weekly basis where they come together and there's no multitasking. There's just focus on God and His Word and His glory and His will. And God knows that you need that. You need that weekly refresh, that weekly refocus. And you need to understand, and I need to understand, that what happens in this room has very little to do with how we feel about things. We don't come in this room to respond out of emotion or what we feel or we don't feel or how did the service make me feel, but we come into this room to commit ourselves to the act of worship to shape our feelings. So let me share with you one more quote from Eugene Peterson that I think is helpful. We think, Americans, that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God 
that is expressed in an act of worship. This is part of how you develop the fear of the Lord in your life. Yes, listening to sermons on your own is great. Yes, listening to to Christian music on your own is great. Yes, having personal devotion time regularly, consistently throughout the week is great. All those things are great. They're wonderful. But in this room, there is a focused attention from the people of God to worship the Lord, to acknowledge His glory and His holiness, to confess our sin and our need for the Lord Jesus Christ, and to fear Him. And the psalmist talks about that in Psalm 119. Lastly, number five, and briefly, because we will come back to this as we go through Psalm 119, we must believe that God and His Word are good. That God and His Word are good. I'll leave you to look at Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19 and what David says about the goodness of God's Word. I draw your attention to verse 39. He says, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Your rules are good. There's a daily decision in front of you if you're a follower of Jesus. The daily decision is to say to yourself, do I believe that there is a God? Do I believe that He's good? Do I believe that what He said to His people is a reflection of His character and that His Word is good? You will never be able to endure as a follower of Jesus apart from the solid, firm conviction that the one true God is a good God and that His Word, it's not restrictive, it's not limiting, it's not something that ruins fun in your life, but that His Word is actually good. 